Sluggo Atul podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk. My name is Brandon O'Neill, and on today's In Conversation Slugger podcast, I am joined by Ellie Francis. Ellie runs Nepternal, a consultancy that helps companies manage talent. Ellie, thanks for being on the show. No problem, Brian. Glad to be here. So just for our listeners, um, why I wanted to talk to you is I think your business is very interesting because those kind of older listeners who grew up in the kind of 80s and 90s will remember a time when there was quite large unemployment in Northern Ireland. But today that situation has been reversed and there's actually a skill shortage now, we know there's a skill shortage in the obvious things like um, IT and, and skills worker, but there's also a skill shortage in a lot of industries, for example, like chefs and even like delivery drivers and fruit pickers and care homes and hospitals and, and pretty much every sector. So I think um, your work is interesting in that you kind of help companies manage talent and kind of, which in simple language just mean, means kind of keep employees. So do you want to tell us a little yeah. bit more about your work? Yeah, so essentially um, what I do is I consult with companies on how they manage their talent strategy. Now, this consists of three key areas. So we look at how you might brand yourself as an employer of choice. So how you communicate to talent that they should come and work for you. Now, we're not recruiters. We don't recruit the talent on behalf of you, but it's more so about creating that inbound source of talent. So as talent actually actively want to work for you. We also look at the retention piece. So once you have the talent, how do you keep them? And then finally, we look at motivating talent um, so as you don't suffer levels of low productivity. So as with the talent that you have, you're motivating them um, to be the best that they can be, um, both for themselves and also for your organization and within your organization. Um, so certainly an interesting area, particularly within um, a talent shortage, Brian, you're right. So, I mean, does the work... Is it purely as a result of there just being this kind of talent shortage that kind of companies are kind of forced to up their game essentially, whereas before it kind of like could have, could have just replaced you if, if, <laughs> uh, with 10 other people who are looking for the same job, but now there's just, it's so difficult to recruit people. Is that the kind of core issue? So I think this is very interesting because the talent shortage has certainly highlighted the need um, to properly manage talent and to have a proper strategy in this area. So a talent shortage in areas like financial services and technology um, and and those types of areas, legal as well, would be a big one, has prompted the companies, yes, you're exactly right, um, to focus both strategy and also budget um, in this area of keeping people happy and, and motivating people properly. But I think if you look back on companies that have done well um, in recent years, you know, in terms of both the noughties um, and as we've come now closer to 2020, companies such as Apple and Google, they have always prioritized this area and not just during a talent shortage. And I think the important thing to remember is that although a talent shortage certainly gives you that that um, kickstart that you need to start focusing on this area because ultimately it becomes a need as opposed to a nice to have where you physically don't have enough talent to deliver for your clients and it's also important to remember that even if you have a lot of talent even if you have lots of talent coming in and out of your business and essentially you can just replace anyone who leaves you can still suffer a massive hit to cash flow from lack of productivity so if you're not motivating the people that you have properly or you can't recruit high quality talent 
you can still suffer a massive um, hit to cash flow and it can be just as impactful on the bottom line as, for instance, um, lower sales. Okay, got it. Well, I suppose, yeah, because people don't realize that there's a kind of a cost to replacing people. You know, I mean, there's the obvious cost of, of, of recruitment, which which can be several thousand pounds and then yeah. recruit a new member of staff, but also to kind of get them up to speed and the training and, and all that. And if somebody walks out the door, then you have your had a big financial hit. Yeah, we've we've done quite a lot of work on this. Um and and essentially every company is different. You know, what they spend on recruitment, what they spend on training um will be different. But um the average of what we looked at was that replacing someone costs about nine months of their salary. Um, which obviously is is generally um, several thousand pounds, you would hope anyway, um, that they're going to be spending replacing this person. And it's not only those obvious costs like um, paying a recruitment company or paying um, a training consultancy to come in and train your, your new joiners, but it's also things like generally when you have a new start in a team, a more experienced person um, will be their buddy for the first year or the first two years. And, and that person's time is massively consumed and, and rightly so by the new joiner asking questions. And, and you also then have the element of you have to absorb a certain amount of mistakes um, and and people not being up to speed on, on how to actually complete the work and how to serve the client. So new, new employees are quite a drain on resources to your business and, and it's absolutely worth it. If you're recruiting for growth, I think it's extremely worth it to bring people in, to train them properly, to ensure that they're getting all of the help they need because essentially you want them to be a leader of the future. But if you have a bit of a revolving door, um, so to speak, what we would say in the industry of people who are coming in and leaving after 18 months or, or even six months in some cases, um, and people are sort of coming and coming and going um, quite, quite um, thick and fast, it can get quite expensive and not just in those very obvious areas like recruitment fees and training fees. It's also in the sense of both productivity levels. You know, they won't be up to full speed for quite some time. And also they are essentially going to be a bit of a drain on your on your other employees. Yeah, because I mean, there's a lot more transparency now with with jobs and companies. So, for example, there's the website Glassdoor, which kind of lets staff review companies um, and that's makes a very interesting reading. So there's a there's a lot more information now that people have about companies, and and if you have a reputation of being a, a bad employer, then it, it's going to be very difficult for you to for you to crack that and, and, and attract the staff you need, isn't it? Most definitely. Um, certainly the movement towards um, companies needing to impress talent um, has led to a huge pull of choice for um, prospective employees. So if you're looking for a job nowadays, there are so many elements that you can consider and so many companies that you can research. Um, and it is almost like becoming a client. You are almost buying into something because you're taking this job and it's going to be where you spend quite a lot of your time. Um, and so people do do their research now. Um, and, and it is a case of you do really need to impress people because um, people are not now just taking a job because they absolutely need it. People are taking a job because they've done the research and it's almost a case of when you interview someone, they're also interviewing you at the same time and they're asking about things that perhaps they have read on places like Glassdoor. Um, and my experience has been that people are not scared to ask these questions. Um, you know, prospect employees are not coming in now and asking, what's the salary and when can I start? 
They're common in asking about things like your diversity statistics. They're common in asking about things like your social calendar. They'll be asking about things like working environment, flexible working, remote working. They're asking these very intelligent questions about the way you work. Um, and you're having to work a lot, lot harder to get people. Um, in terms of things like Glassdoor, I think it's a very, very positive thing. I think companies who are managing um, talent strategically and properly have absolutely nothing to fear. Um, generally, um, when I work with clients, it's a very, very negative conversation about Glassdoor. People don't like it from the employer perspective because they'd much rather everything stay behind closed doors. Um, but ultimately, that's just not the way it is anymore. And actually, my big tip to employers who are doing things well and who have got happy bunnies in their office essentially is encourage those people to put their review on Glassdoor. You know, it shouldn't just be a case of Glassdoor is a magnet for bad reviews. But the reason for that is that companies aren't encouraging current employees and employees who have left, but perhaps have a, have a positive um, view of the business to put their review up as well. You know, there's nothing stopping a current employee speaking to Glassdoor about their positive experience, as opposed to always having to be employees who have left and have an axe to grind with you. And um, what are younger people um, looking for in employ employment now? And, and how do you think that, that differs from kind of previous generations? Because I know um, older people, I mean, work work is social. A lot of people have kind of friendships at work. But sometimes, um, I mean, my background is in internet work and marketing. And I, I personally find it a bit creepy that, that kind of some of these companies are trying to pretend, pretend that like you're, they're your best friend. And I think especially Google, you know, it have this thing where um, they they feed you and it's like free massages and they'll do your like dry cleaning for you. And I mean, those things, it's it's you can see them as positive, but you can also see it as a kind of a, a weird gilded cage where they don't want you to kind of leave the leave. premises almost, you know. <laughs> So it's kind of, um, I mean, it's in some ways, is it a thing where people have unrealistic, unrealistic expectations of work and should they be thinking more of like, it's just a place to go, earn some money, do what you can, but you know, they're not your, it's not your family or your, your best buddies, you know? <laughs> I think with that, that's very, very interesting. The first thing I will say is um employer branding which is what we call this um this um area where people are branding themselves as an employer of choice and putting out content and and it's exactly like marketing brian where people basically put out an aura of what they are as an employer um companies um like google and it's not just google there are so many companies have these very tangible benefits um i always joke about the ball pit and reception or slides and that type of thing um those are very superficial benefits and employees and prospect employees, particularly the millennial and Gen Z bracket, which are the younger generations, they're not that easily wooed and they need to have a very, very genuine and authentic reason to work for a company. So what I would say is anything that I would kind of refer to as a gimmicky benefit, which would be the likes of dry cleaning, free food, um, you know, Mars bars in the office, um, you know, lots of social events, lots of free drinks, all the rest of it. 
I see those as quite gimmicky benefits. And if you don't have a very, very good culture underneath all that and you don't have an authentic culture and you don't have a genuine environment that people want to work in, then those benefits might attract people, but they won't retain them. And you're into that cost per hire um, issue again, where you have a revolving door and you're spending this excess money all on recruitment. In terms of what young people are looking for in the workforce, um, we do extensive research on this every year. Um, I try to speak to as many millennials and, and Gen Z as I can um, to figure out how this is changing. And what we have found is the landscape is changing a little bit in terms of the two big factors that people value are um, a sense of purpose. So that's been the case for quite a few years now. So people want to really know what they are contributing to. So when we start um, out at entry level in an organization, generally the work you're working on might seem quite insignificant because it will be quite a small part of a project and essentially a part that you can't mess up because you're in training. The, the downside of this is it's difficult for them to see where this fits into the overall um, company purpose, where it fits into the overall strategic objectives. And it's so, so important that you can highlight that to them. Some practical steps of how to do that are to take them to client kickoff meetings, for example, or you could actually have them sit in on client calls just so as they can see where their part fits into the overall delivery. Um, they also really value a relaxed um, and positive work environment. People want to be encouraged to have ideas and they want to be encouraged to raise them um, and, and maybe to get it wrong. Sometimes, you know, you hear some horror stories about people making one mistake when they're 23 and, and it haunting them for the rest of their career. Maybe they've been put in a performance plan or or even worse, maybe they've their employment's been terminated. This is not what young people are looking for. They're looking for environments where they can slip and slip and eventually get to the right answer, which in turn is really, really innovative and really forward thinking. I always tell um, senior executives within companies, you need to listen to your young employees because they are consumers of the future and, and they really understand what you're trying to get at and they will have ideas that you just don't have. Um, but in terms of the more recent shift, there is definitely much more of a shift um, with Generation Z, who are sort of people who will be entering the workforce now, um, bordering up at those tw age 22, 23. They are placing much more of a focus on salary. So we went through quite a period of time there where, you know, money doesn't make you happy. Money doesn't matter. You know, we want jobs that we love, not necessarily focusing on the salary. Now that many companies are offering jobs that we love, salary is starting to set them apart again because there are so so many good options that generations that are now starting to place a little bit more of a focus back onto back onto the bottom line so uh, i mean it's easy for the kind of sexy companies you know the kind of googles and the facebooks and the, the kind of like um you know if, if you're working on game of thrones or, or whatever it is whatever it is locally um but it I'm not surprised you have a lot of kind of like uh, kind of very boring looking companies, you know, kind of legal or accountancy or or whatever. I mean, if, if you get a client who's in these kind of very staid kind of traditional industries, I mean, what is your advice? Is your advice just to be kind of blunt and just kind of, you know, offer lots of cash and decent work for or how did how did the kind of non sexy companies attract talent? What I would say is that you are competing on a playing field. You're competing on your own playing field. So, for example, um, a newly qualified solicitor is unlikely to want to work on the production of Game of Thrones. 
Um, you know, mm-hmm. you're competing with other law firms and you're competing with um, other accountancy practices and um, technology companies, yes, are competing on a much, much higher level because the benefits in that industry and, and essentially the sexiness of that industry is much more prevalent. But you're only competing against your market competitors for, you know, your talent competitors um, who will be other law firms um, or professional services companies who hire um, law graduates. So you have to look at who you're actually competing against for talent and not think to yourself, well, actually, we will never be able to put on the show that Google are putting on. The second point I would make on that is, um, again, those really sexy benefits are skin deep. Um People value a very, very good workflow, a good culture, um, genuinely good prospects for promotion. What I would say here is small companies always tell me we can't promote people. We don't have anywhere to promote them to. There are hundreds of different ways to present a progression track to employees. That's something that we work with companies on all the time. Um, It's all about how you communicate your own benefits. It's not about a law company, a law company, a legal company trying to be Google. It's not about an accountancy firm trying to be Twitter. It's all about how you compete on your own playing field and how you communicate genuine benefits of working for you versus a similar career with someone else. Okay. And then on that note, because traditional, the biggest kind of employer in Northern Ireland has always been the kind of civil service, because that's where a lot of people would end up. But but now I assume that with a lot of the kind of new competition for jobs, I mean, is it, you know, well, maybe it's not your area, but you know, is the civil service finding it hard to kind of recruit talents? Because I know there's particularly like a lot of shortages in IT in the civil service and, and certain sectors. So, I mean, is it going to be tricky maybe for... Um, kind of civil service and kind of public organizations to going to attract talent because of the less kind of um, things that they can uh, leverage the pull in the commercial organizations? I don't know specifically about the civil service, but what I would say about those more public um, organizations is certainly their employer brand message and how they communicate the benefit of working for them has always been security. It's always been mm-hmm. job security, decent salary, you know, it's, people are lifers, you know, you can stay here your whole career, you'll have a decent career. The workflow obviously is, is I'm sure, very good at the minute um, and in normal times is, is good as well. Um, but those are very, very basic needs. Those are, you know, what the more commercial companies are offering and then some. So I don't think that necessarily it's going to be impossible for public organizations and public bodies to recruit going forward. But I think they very much need to reframe how they are presenting themselves as an employer of choice because security just isn't going to cut it anymore. People can leave a job and and get a new job fairly quickly. Something that we're seeing actually more of now is people hand their notice in before they even have another job lined up. Now, years ago, that just wouldn't have happened. You would have been wanting to sign a contract and you know, sign a contract in blood before you would ever think about handing in your notice because of the security element. But now jobs come and jobs go um, and companies come and companies go. The people are quite happy to um, do that leapfrog around. So security isn't really as attractive as it was. And what I would say for um, public organizations or any company who use job security as their main draw, then you really do need to reframe that. Okay. And now, how do you think the employment kind of landscape 
will change after kind of COVID nineteen because I know there's been a, there's been a huge move obviously to kind of remote work and people working from home. Do you think that's a trend that's going to continue? And something I kind of worry about is companies can maybe realize well if 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 you can work remotely, you can work from anywhere in the world. So, I mean, why do we actually need to set up an office in Belfast or, or Dublin when we can just hire people from, from anywhere and kind of go almost completely virtual, if that makes sense? Or you think it will always be a need for offices and for people to meet and have a structure? I think, I think there are two different questions in this. In terms of the need for offices, I think there will certainly always be a want for offices. People like meeting in person. Um, I certainly couldn't imagine being totally virtual forever. I am definitely a chatty person. I like meeting with clients. I like reading body language, talking face to face, particularly as we would interview their employees and stuff. We like to sort of speak face to face and see, you know, get down to what the real issues are. Um, in terms of remote working, I think it's a very, very interesting point. Um, I think remote working is here to stay. But in essence, companies who have been doing talent management well, um, remote working isn't an issue for them. Um, it, it's not a new thing. It's not something that they've newly incorporated. Certainly, we have been very much forced to go towards remote working recently. Um, companies who had that option in place for, you know, childcare purposes or, um, you know, if you were perhaps feeling a little under the weather or um, you wanted to work from home for any other reason, um, they found it a lot easier to move to the full-time remote working because they had the capabilities in place. On the other hand, companies who were very adverse to remote working, um, they very much didn't like this. They had to get it in place, but it took weeks and months. Some companies are still just getting there in terms of getting remote working properly set up. I don't think people are going to want to roll back on that because it's so integral to employee engagement. And the big downside of remote working is it's quite expensive to set it up initially. And now that it's set up, I don't see any benefit of taking a climb down from, from that new way of working. What I would say is many companies take issue with remote working on the basis of productivity. I hear so so many times companies don't want people working at home because they won't work as hard. They'll be watching Netflix all day, all these types of things. They'll be watching their kids. But if you have a good system in place to track productivity and you can track performance and you're doing that properly, you have nothing to fear from people working from home or working remotely. Of course, you don't have to be at the moment. We're all working from home. But of course, in, in normal times, remote working can be a coffee shop. You could be remote working from a different country. You could be on holiday, whatever it may be. Um, I think remote working is here to stay. And I don't think that it's a threat to productivity if you have a proper way of tracking performance. In terms of how it impacts the local employment market. I think it's a very interesting point that you make that, you know, is there a motivation for companies to have um, a Belfast-based office? I actually think companies in Belfast have more to fear because our employees can now work remotely for anyone in the world. And so you're now not just competing with companies in Belfast. So essentially at that lower level in terms of what you need to provide to employees, you're competing with companies in Silicon Valley, Canary Wharf. You're competing with companies over in um, Hong Kong, Shanghai. You now have to put on a much bigger show because the pool of where employees can source employment from remotely has just widened um, massively. And, and it is going to be more competitive for you to keep your employees. Um, back in February, I, I was doing some research on the local jobs market for a client. 
And I was surprised that on um, one of the kind of job sites, there was like a thousand jobs in, in IT and, and web work. But out of those thousand jobs, only two were part-time or flexible. And I find that strange and that a whole kind of portion of potential talent is being ignored because there's lots of reasons, like maybe you've just had a baby or you've got school age kids or you're, you're a carer for a parent. I mean, we know in Northern Ireland, I think it's nearly 30% economically inactive. And it seems strange for me that the companies would ignore such a huge potential pool of talent, especially when getting somebody really, really good at their job for five hours a day is better than getting a complete plank for eight hours a day. So, I mean, is there a reason we think companies are less inclined to be more flexible or part-time? Um, absolutely, Brian. I, I completely agree with you there. Um, and that's not just an a new employee face an issue that's an issue that we have um within companies as well i have many many um fellow women and men in business who have tried to go part-time um at their company at their organization and have gone self-employed or have started a company as a result of this being such a such a difficult area um to navigate what i would say is i would encourage any company who are trying to find the best talent trying to find the most high quality talent to approach this with a very open mind because I think I completely agree with you Brian that um, people who are productive for four hours three days a week um, are, are much more benefit to you than people who um, are hiding essentially um, full-time five days a week I think the reason why companies do this in terms of the advertising space, obviously, um, two out of a thousand is not very good odds. Um, for me, it's it's actually just because it's easy. I would say that companies don't know how to frame part-time offers. They aren't seeking help with their talent management. They don't know how to almost position that internally from a strategic point of view and it's just easy to offer a full-time job you know they can copy and paste their normal contract and they can get the person in conveyor belt style that can be very very harmful and that can be something that really stilts productivity and it can rule out top talent for your company so I think that companies need to be a lot more um, open-minded and even just adding something into the job um, spec that says if you can only work part-time, let's still have a conversation. Because at the end of the day, companies are putting out, particularly in, in the technology space, putting out job ad advertisements in here in crickets. You know, there's companies putting out advertisements for jobs and no one's applying. Those companies are desperate for someone to have a conversation with them, even if that conversation includes working part-time or working flexibly, but they just don't know how to communicate that out. And that's an area that they really, really need to focus on. What I would say from the employer, the employee's perspective, sorry, is I would be reaching out to the company and I would be saying, look, I really feel I'm perfect for this role. Um, is this something that you would consider? And to be honest with you, absolutely shouldn't have to be something that the employee feels they need to do. But that would just be a tip for them. But what I would be saying to employers is you need to be a lot more flexible. People have different priorities, even something from the perspective of many employee employers don't allow you to run a business part time. Um, so many employers either want you to be a full time employee, but you can't, for example, be a company director or you can't run, um, you know, do freelance marketing while you're working for a, an agency. And um, that's really harmful as well, because it's so easy for people to become self-employed that they're just going to say, right, that's fine. Then I'm I'm handing in my notice. Um, any time that you can be flexible with your employees to keep top talent, I would absolutely encourage um, people to consider that option. Yeah, I mean that that is that is a good peop, uh, a good tip for people is is to contact companies direct and say mm -hmm. like 
I think I'd be a good fit. Because I think what really annoys me is kind of clock watching is that people should be, work should be based on what you produce in your productivity, not just not just the hours, you know? And I think that's what we need to, to move from um, with the kind of new modern world is kind of people are judged on kind of results at the time. Absolutely. Um, so we call that presenteeism, essentially um, companies who base someone's performance on visibility. I actually heard a very astounding story last year of um, a girl who um, didn't get promoted and she asked for some feedback and was told that it was actually because she was working on client site and the person who had been promoted ahead of her was in the office. And so his visibility was better. Um, that to me is just absolutely crazy. Um, I, I think presenteeism is very, very harmful you have people who sit around the office to seven eight o'clock at night um chatting to people drinking coffee um you know maybe doing a little bit of work but certainly nothing close to 90 or 100 percent productivity and those people are obviously networking with um managers and, and company seniors after work which is completely fine but they have a lot more face time um, and a lot more presenteeism and as a result they're getting promoted faster this might not necessarily be a reflection that they are the best um, most high quality person in the role and just um there was something that i'll get your opinion on because there's something i was going to write about for slugger is i have lots of friends in academia and academia seems to have more more levels and Scientology in terms of all the different grades that, that you can have and the different salary points. But I find it interesting is that it seems to be incredibly divisive because what's happening at the moment is with COVID and things, I guess, certain institutions are postponing um, their promotion rounds and, and this type of stuff. And it, it seems to create really bad blood. And you end up in a situation almost where... You could have staff kind of actively working against an organization. I mean, I'm not saying that they would, but the, the ultimate aim is if you annoy people that much. So I'm always kind of curious of why companies and organizations think that they need all these kind of different levels and structures. And would it not be more sensible to flatten the kind of structures? Because you can get a lot of kind of envy kind of builds up, you know, when Joe gets a promotion and you don't or and all these kind of little things. And then also I find it a bit odd in that there's this perception, you know, your pay increases as your career goes along, which seems a bit unusual because what I find is when you're younger, you actually do more work. But you've just more energy and you're getting into it and you're, you're kind of more productive. And, and as, you, as you're kind of... Um, declining in your career you tend to get to, you tend to do less work and then also you kind of need the money when you're starting off or when you're having buying a house and uh, having kids and the kind of need for the, the big salary is kind of less as you're kind of approaching retirement so does that kind of make sense it's almost seems like back to front and do you think there's kind of merit in companies having like flatter structures in terms of grades and salary where it's kind of more equal and, and less divisive or am I some kind of utopian dreamer? <laughs> um, companies who have flat hierarchies um, tend to work really well. Now, what I would say is this generally has a positive correlation with companies who have a very good value structure um, and a very great um, people culture. Um, what I would say, the risk of a, of a flat um, hierarchy, that seems like a bit of an oxymoron, but you know what I mean. Um, the risk there is lack of leadership um, so we have a flat hierarchy and then there's kind of a lack of who actually is the decision maker and what is the decision making process. That's obviously a completely different um, strategic area. But in terms of why 
do companies have so many promotion track levels and, and should they? Um, my take on this is I, I wouldn't be a massively controversial you know, controversial person in terms of this, I wouldn't be very triggered by the, you know, do you have a flat hierarchy or do you have lots of promotions? What I would say and what I always encourage clients to take consideration of is what actually is important to your employees. Um, so companies tend to focus on what's important to them. So they'll either have massive bonuses or massive salary increases or promotions or suites in the office. And actually, that will only be important to a certain portion of your employees. So you will have employees who are driven by um, financial incentives. So those are the people that you should be given regular pay rises to or bonuses or commission, for example. Um, that will really motivate a person like that. But someone who is motivated by time. So for example, if you have young kids and you really want to spend time with them um, and take them on you know, nice holidays and um, really, really um, enjoy those younger years with your kids, doing something great in work if you earn um a thousand pound bonus or you might earn five extra days of leave the leave is going to be more attractive to the person who is focused on time so you have to really get to the bottom of and the nitty-gritty of what is important to which people in your firm you will have people who desperately want to climb the ladder those are the people who need a promotion every year. Those are the people who are getting jealous of everyone else's promotions. Those are the people who are really, really focusing on that progression track. But equally, you will have someone else who is more focused on time and they're more interested in extra leave. They're more interested in perhaps um, holiday vouchers instead of a bonus. They'll be more interested in family fun days or, or even social events. So you really need to get to the nitty gritty of what's important to your employees it's not a straight answer of yes having a very complex promotion and progression track is essential and nor is it a case of you have to have a flat hierarchy or it's not motivational it's more about what motivates your employees because of course changing someone's title costs you nothing so it has to be adding strategic value yeah, because I think sometimes you get a paradox in organizations where you have somebody who's incredibly good at their job and productive, but then they're kind of promoted into management where they no longer do their day-to-day -day job and instead they kind of attend lots of meetings. <laughs> so it's kind of a, it's kind of almost like the worst possible thing for some people to do is to get a promotion where it takes them out of doing what they're actually good at and then they just spend all day in endless meetings and administration yes and this is across every single industry um brian this is this is not not a new issue and it's a huge thing where people are as you say really really good at their job exceptional for example software developers or or really good accountants and then they're promoted into a senior management role where actually their new role is to motivate people or um, retain people and actually the role completely revolves around managing a team um, which might not necessarily be what they're good at. And more importantly, it might not be what they want to do. Again, I would encourage massively open communication channels with your um, employees. Some people are just um, putting their time in and they want to be people managers. That's completely fine. Those are the people to put into the people management um, roles. And as you say, some people don't. Some people are more interested in getting really, really good at their job. And there's nothing to stop you creating a progression track for this person to put them into a subject matter expert position, for example, where actually they are at senior management level, but they're more of an expert whereby people will ask them technical questions or they'll make technical explanations to clients, but they won't necessarily be responsible for the day-to-day -day people management. I think the days of 
basing someone's salary and position on how many people they manage and their budget are are completely over and and it's not motivational at all, particularly for those subject matter experts who we need within our organisations. Okay. And as we finish up, Ellie, um, I was just going to ask you, is there any kind of like two or three books or podcasts or anything you've read recently that you recommend to listeners to check out? So for me, um, certainly in my area, a, a, a really, really great book and something that I'd really recommend is The Joy of Work um, by Bruce Daisley. Um, it's a very interesting place to start if you don't know where to start with um, talent management strategy and, and you're not really sure what the here and now of talent management is. So Bruce is a VP at Twitter. Um, he is very, very well read on, on all things talent strategy. He also has a podcast. Um, I believe his podcast is Eat, also... Sleep, Work, Repeat. Yes, that's right. That's yes, right. I, I listen to it. It's very good. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. Bruce is, is fantastic. And I would highly recommend um, starting there um, on your talent um, strategy journey. Okay. And anything else that you recommend generally that's maybe outside of your industry or anything you've enjoyed? Or... Um, so more generally, um, I absolutely love um, things like Stephen Coveney, those types of books. I think they're all very, very good. I love how to win friends and influence people. Um, obviously that is is quite quite an old one now. Um, but those are the types of things I would recommend reading if you're really interested in how to communicate with people and how to motivate them. Yeah, I I found the Dale Carnegie book was um kind of depressing read for me because <laughs> it, it, it kind of realized that all the things I'd done terrible <laughs> before I read the books because <laughs> I, I used to be kind of renowned for just kind of winding people up um which was never a good idea but then, I know that it is it is a it is it's a, it's a classic of the genre isn't it of, of these types of things absolutely it, it is it is a classic and it's it's again somewhere to start if you are just getting into this area um but unfortunately recently I haven't been doing much by way of business reading I've been trying to um get some more um, ticked off my fiction list because I've had a little bit more time at home. Um, so yeah, no, definitely. Um, Bruce Daisley and Dale Carnegie, I think, are really, really good places to start. Do, do, do you think, because there tends to be a myth that kind of to get ahead in business, you kind of be need to be kind of ruthless, but but you think like likability is, is important as well? I think likability is, is really important um, in terms of business. People, it's very corny and I don't even like this phrase but people buy people um people want to work with someone that they trust um I mean for my clients it's it's really really important we're putting together innovative strategies sometimes that some of them haven't even heard of and so it's really important that they trust my judgment and they understand that I'm I'm in it for them and I have their best interests at heart so I think yeah no in business likability is really important I think ruthless ruthlessness works in the short term but only for the short term and, and you can really burn quite a few bridges in, in a short space of time if you're not careful well on a positive note that uh, <laughs> nice nice people win long term I think we'll, we'll wrap yeah. it up there so um, Ellie thanks very much for your time and we'll put links to your sites on the post if you wanna, people want to contact you fantastic and if you like this podcast and uh, you want to listen to more you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast from so ellie thanks very much for joining us today thanks brian the slugger O'Toole podcast is sponsored by queen's university belfast researchers at queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus to discover more about their research please visit qeb.ac.uk